bum bum bottom 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 bum b
is in the opposite direction of that because I want a cookie that's all mine. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe that's a little bit of my only child nature coming in. And I know that if I get the lemon bar cookie, it's more than likely that I'll get the majority of that cookie in my stomach. I see. Where that's not the case <laughs> with, you know, the molten chocolate lava one, that uh, the cookie. Yeah. I'm glad to know that our marriage still contains a little bit of mystery because the most chocolatey <laughs> chocolate cookie is not my favorite cookie. Uh, it's not. That's not true. In that batch last night or just in general? In general. Oh, okay. Because in, in that life. batch last night, the best cookie, which is no longer around for breakfast, was the carrot cake cookie. Well, I mean, it is the season. Yeah. It is Easter. Okay. So you admitted that, though. Yeah. Car- the carrot cake cookie was the best cookie of the I, bunch? I can't say because I've been saving the chocolate chocolate for last. Oh, so which I means you truly it. do love but it. The best- it's like when we save Saga to read at the very end of our comics pile. Neither of us want to read that first. Yeah. But my favorite cookie that I was shocked and disappointed that you did not get is a chocolate chip cookie. Yeah, uh, to me, like when you have so many options that this this company that will go unnamed offers, then obviously one of, one a, of them is going to be a chocolate chip cookie. Yeah, and I, that's boring. No, like it's not I boring. want the crazy cookie flavors. Um, I want that iced oatmeal, baby. Why would you settle for crazy and kooky if it's just not as good? Ah, uh, because it's uh, like because what I seek is variety, not necessarily this like if. I don't want to have the greatest cookie of all time every single time. This is, uh, you're speaking as a true fan of the film Your Highness. You're like, I. sometimes I just need pure kook. It doesn't matter if it's good. It doesn't matter if it's wholesome. I can't believe you've brought Your Highness (laughs) into this because anytime you bring, like anytime we're having an argument in front of people, you will go like, yeah, but don't forget, this guy loves your he highness. He loves that movie. And then everyone turns against me. Yeah, because it goes to show that you don't care if you're actually enjoying look, something. Look. If it's different enough, you'll say you like All right, it. I'm not speaking to you right now. I'm speaking to the listeners. Okay. okay I need you to listening. rewatch Your Highness after you read the prequel comic that's illustrated by Sean Phillips. Yes, Sean Phillips, who does the Reckless books and the Criminal books with Ed Brubaker. He illustrated a Your Highness prequel comic because he knew it was good too, or he he needed a job. But you read that prequel comic, watch that movie, recognize it's genius. Genius. (laughs) It's genius. It's genius. I'm all flabbergasted. And its species is entertaining (sighs) Um, because uh, I have read that comic. Brilliantly (sighs) illustrated. Bad comic. Oh, sad, sad. Uh, Okay. Um, I was also going to talk about how it's hard to drink coffee with no air conditioning because our air conditioning units busted. Yeah, and we but, haven't gotten it fixed despite the fact that we live in a rental and we could get someone in today. But that means we got to clean up the apartment, right? Yeah, and we're not in the mood. And we're not in the mood. And uh, I think we've already had enough debate over the cookies. I don't think we need to go into arguing over why the air conditioning is not uh, fixed yet because we know it's, it's We're at problem. peace with that. We've decided okay, that, good. like, because we had two early super hot days and then it immediately had one of our like 
Virginia super boisterous summer storms, and now it's gone back to being 50 degrees, and yeah, it's very so nice in here. Have the windows open, and it's not too bad, and it makes the coffee uh, bearable. Context- yeah. Contextually, the right temperature. Yeah. Okay. All right, Your Highness. There we go. That was our banter, friends. Uh, real quick, uh, before we get into the main body of the show, I want to remind everyone that our upcoming screening of Superman the movie and Superman. Superman 2, the Donner Cut, back-to-back is happening on April 16th at 4 o'clock and 7.40. Uh, All CBCC patrons get in for free. We've already had a few uh, secure their tickets with us. Just let us know. Uh, We have folks flying in from California. We have folks flying in from Georgia to come to this back-to-back screening. We're really excited about it. We're trying to work behind the scenes with DC Comics to get something special hooked up. Although the closer we get to it, it seems less and less likely that that specific thing's going to happen. But, but maybe, cross your fingers, something really cool could be at this screening. And if not, Brad and Lisa will be there. And we we're kind of cool, too. Yeah. We're like the lemon cookie. Yeah, and Sean Eastridge from the Missing Frames podcast will be helping us co-host that event. And, of course, Eric from the Eisner-nominated comic book shop Four Color Fantasies will be there selling comics as well because what we're doing with these screenings is promoting comics in addition to promoting the films that they are based on. And, you know, I'm excited to see what Eric puts in his short box of books that he brings to all of these things. Uh, it, it was really fun to see how he diversified his selection for our Lone Wolf and Cub series last month. So yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a good time. So if you're in the DMV, the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area, come on out to our Alamo Draft House Winchester screening of Superman and Superman 2. That is going to be the most fun, and it is good to get those pluggity plugs out of the way because we have Mark and Eve just chilling in the waiting room going, we need this session stat because Mark made a big boo-boo, he disappeared like he said he wasn't going to do for several years, and now our Tara is much taller and an age Lisa doesn't know exactly how long it's been yet. Yes, on this episode, we are discussing the Invincible Reboot arc. If you have somehow stumbled into Comic Book Couples Counseling and you have not listened to our last two episodes, go to the show notes, click those links. We had Robert Kirkman on to help program this series, and he selected the titles that we'll be covering over the next three episodes. And we've already done one on the Modern Family arc, and today's episode is on Reboot, which is a real weird one. Yeah. Have you ever thought, like, if I went back in time today and did high school all over again, I would, like, kill it. I would, like, really nail it. With my life experience yeah. and a high schooler's body yeah. and with a, a high schooler's sense of perspective that high school doesn't actually matter, oh, man, I'd be so... I, I'd be Val Victorian, valedictorian. Oh, well, I would have time to look that up. And then also I would be prom queen. I think everyone on this planet has had a thought similar to that in some way, right? 
Um, this was the arc of Invincible. I was maybe the most excited for you to read, Lisa. Mark Grayson on the hunt for Throg after the absolute slaughtering of poor Battle Beast mm. goes searching where he shouldn't. On an alien planet, he digs deep into a cavernous system and discovers a strange blue tendril creature. And when he comes into contact with it, boom, Mark goes back in time to the very beginning of Invincible. One difference, like you said, he has the memories of everything that will come after. What's he going to do with this knowledge? Dun, dun, dun. But just real quick, Lisa, what was your initial reaction to that moment where Mark found himself powerless back on the toilet with his mom banging on the door? I mean, I was totally shocked. I actually texted you. Yeah, I was in Anaheim for WonderCon when you read it. Yeah, and I sent you a, a screen grab yep. with like a huge, like, what, WTF? Right. Like, what is happening? And at first I was like, well, this is fun because I'm like, I love this era of Invincible. I love the beginning of Invincible. It's like nostalgic and fun to go back to that place. But then also I was like, is this kind of cheap? Because where Invincible had gone in that current timeline, it was like such a cluster. Like <laughs> there was seemed to be like no way out for Mark and Eve. And I was excited to see them kind of scrounge their way out of a out of that like paper bag. And you also know, because you're reading this after the whole series is wrapped up, that after reboot, there's only three trade mm -hmm. paperbacks. So like what is the impact of this? situation really going to be. So of course I immediately presumed like, oh, he's going to go to the past and fix everything and everything's going to be better. And that's how Invincible is going to end. And and that's not, that's not fun or interesting. Not but, satisfying. But then it did not do that. And that was very satisfying. Yeah. And then you see that final page and you're like, oh no, maybe it was still cheap. Maybe they just wanted to make Tara a little bit older so she was no longer a baby because babies are boring. Uh, I, 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 okay, so hold that thought for our main discussion. I'm feeling feisty today. We're really going to dig into where this book leaves off this family um, because it's very complicated. You know, reading the story in trade paperback form is just so different than reading it in singles month to month. When that moment and that story is dragged across so much time, the panic kind of sets in. Like, what is happening to Invincible? Like, I mean, did he truly reboot Invincible? In an interview with David Harper from Sketched, which was done around the same time as we had Robert on our show, Kirkman said that this arc was a direct response to fans asking whether or not Invincible would ever do a continuity-wide reboot like DC Comics did with The New 52. Now, we've covered that DC event a few times on the podcast via our Aquaman episodes, our Swamp Thing episodes, and probably a few others. Personally, rebooting comics or renumbering comics with a new number one has never bothered me. I've never been too worried about continuity. I follow a creative team on a book, and when they leave, I just imagine it as an <laughs> automatic reboot anyway. Same. Trying to make 90 years of Batman comics all work with each other is pointless, unless you're Grant Morrison. Take the plot bits you like, keep them in your brain, and ditch what you don't. No need to get mad about it. 
That being said, I appreciate what Kirkman said to Harper in regards to how he saw Invincible in conversation with the big two comic books. Invincible, because it operates with a rather limited continuity, just a few years worth, Kirkman really can do what Marvel and DC cannot, and Invincible has always been in conversation with the superhero genre. Mm -hmm. That's why it's so dang fun. Here's a specific quote from that article that speaks to this idea. Kirkman said, That story does exist in continuity, meaning reboot, because it matters. It has ramifications to the larger story of Invincible. So in that way, it's very different than what most reboots are. A lot of it was done to poke fun at Marvel and DC, and a lot of it was to cockily be like, look, we can do this better than you can. That was always fun. But yeah, it was always from a place of love because we love superhero comics, and so it was fun to be able to play with those tropes. And Lisa, we talked about that last episode where Invincible has this ability to both mock and celebrate the genre, mm -hmm. and Reboot does that so well. The reason why Invincible works is because... Robert Kirkman knows so intimately the tropes of comic books and realizes that we too understand those tropes. And so he knows exactly how to interact with our expectations, when to subvert, when to satisfy. And that's kind of like what all art is. In music school, I had to take music theory and all of music is just going like, am I going to go to the tonic chord? Ho, 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 so you thought, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when we say like Invincible is in conversation with superhero comics, that's true. But it actually, maybe even more accurate is what you're saying. It's in conversation with us and our expectations. It's having a meta conversation. Yeah, it's like, totally. okay, it's on one level, it's talking about comic books and how they function. That level on top of that is, okay, now how do we feel about comic books as readers? And then there's another layer of, well, how does he feel as a comic book writer on top of that? And then on top of that, how do how would a character feel living grounded in this wild French braid yeah. of comic book tropes? It's really just brilliant. I went back and read some reviews of the issues that were released in 2015, the reboot issues, mm -hmm. and there was a lot of anxiety around the idea. Most didn't believe it would last, but the thought of it lasting got critics all hot and bothered. Mm -hmm. Mostly, it seemed to be an excuse for critics to vent their frustrations with the new 52, and to a lesser extent, the Marvel Now of event. Uh, so yeah, it's like, I would recommend going back and reading some reboot reviews because a lot of people are working out a lot of feelings. I mean, I would love to have like a, someone who has to do a review of their entire lives, but only every like three months. Because you got like, you, you live three months and like, life is great. I love being on this plane of existence. And then three months later, everything's trash. And I have no idea what's going to happen. It makes me angry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's I, life. What, what would the critics say about Brad, the high school years versus <laughs> Brad, the retail years? You know? We're not going to re-up. I think we should cancel this series. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a great place to leave it. Uh, but we, we need to move into our love expert, Lisa, who are helping Mark and Eve 
work out their very weird romantic life. Yes, for our second session with Mark and Eve, we are, of course, continuing with our love expert, Dr. Brackett, using his book, Permission to Feel, Unlocking the Power of Emotions to Help Our Kids, Ourselves, and Our Society Thrive. Dr. Brackett is a professor at the Yale Child Study Center and a founding director at the Yale Center of Emotional Intelligence. He is the lead developer of Ruler, an evidence-based systematic curriculum for societal and emotional learning for grades pre-K through 12. We've actually had some educators reach out to us and tell us that they are using Ruler at their schools and that they're really getting a lot out of it, and that gets me, like, excited. Last session, we covered the titular, part one, Permission to Feel with Mark and Eve. So now we'll be delving into part two of Permission to Feel, the ruler skills. This part is a bit of a feast. It's got a lot of substance. So we'll be breaking it into two sessions. So today we'll be covering R, U, and L, and we'll be saving the E-R, the er, for later. (laughs) (laughs) Ruler is an acronym for what Dr. B has identified as the five skills of emotional intelligence. But what is emotional intelligence? The concept was introduced as a formal theory in 1990 by psychologist Peter Salovey and John, your emotions are a wonderland, Mayer. <laughs> Same name, different guy. How fun. I legit laughed at that joke. You <laughs> tried to hide your terrible joke with a fake laugh, but it brought a real laugh out of me. Oh, you're so. kind because you are reading ahead in the, in the copy. <laughs> um, emotional intelligence was defined by Salovey and Mayer as the ability to monitor one's own and others' feelings and emotions, to discriminate among them, and to use this information to guide one's thinking and actions. And like all forms of intelligence, your emotional intelligence is not fixed. You can grow your skills through focused practice. Remember from our last session, when we experience emotions in ourselves and in others, we often default to being emotion judges and try to identify emotions as valid or not valid. Yeah, we talked about the concept of meta-emotions, emotions that rise up for having felt an emotion. So you're sad and now you feel guilty for feeling sad, which just makes the sadness extend. Yeah. Like that was like my big takeaway and I, I would say revelation from that episode. And I have used the term meta-emotions in conversations with friends now all week long and uh, it's been really helpful. Yeah, it's a term that's really unlocked something for both of us. Ruler is a set of skills to help us be these emotion scientists, to observe the emotions from a place of impartiality. So the skills, according to Dr. Brackett, are, are you ready, Brad? I'm ready. Give me an R. R. Recognizing the occurrence of an emotion. Give me a U. U. Understanding the cause of the emotion and how they influence our thoughts and decisions. Give me an L. L. Labeling the emotion with a precise term to describe it. Give me an E. I won't because that's for next episode. Oh yeah, that's right. But it will be uh, spoilers, I guess. (laughs) Expressing the emotion. Give me one more R quietly. R. Regulating that emotion. We'll do that next episode. Like I said in this session, oh, I'm just repeating myself. We're only covering the first three, so let's get into them. So R, recognition. When an emotion occurs, 
whether it's in ourselves or in others, most communication is nonverbal. So there are physiological and visceral responses, like um, like if you have your own emotion, you might feel a change in heart rate or maybe a feeling in your gut or on your skin. You might feel a change in energy level, like you might feel buoyant or you might feel exhausted or intense. If it's someone else's emotion, you might see a change in pallor or a flinch or an involuntary facial expression. They might be jumpy or lethargic. There's also, there also might be a change of response in social cues, like a change in tone of voice or posture or gestures or expressions. We've all noticed them. It sounds like I'm explaining emotions <laughs> to like an Android, like beep, boop, beep, <laughs> I how do I feel? I that, but yes. <laughs> the important thing is that we don't judge them, right? We're just at the purely observational stage. One of the things that came up on Twitter this past week is that Jim Varney grid of emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, Jim Varney, who played, you know, the Ernest character and Ernest Goes to Camp and Ernest scares stupid he had such an expressive face that he he just did like every emotion so there's like a Jim Varney like angry a Jim Varney frustrated a, a Jim Varney shy I, I'm gonna see if I can find that and include a link in the show notes to that because it's it's one it's like a great celebration of Jim Varney but I, I think it's also it's it speaks directly to what you're saying right here and there and scientists actually use like facial expression images just like that to do some of their experiences. Like they might um, go like to people with different cultures and go like, okay, everybody from like, uh, generally everybody from every culture sees this face as happy and, and, and blah, blah, blah. And wouldn't it be great if we just lived in a world of, uh, Ernest goes to camp where everybody just wears their information like on their face. Like, this is what I'm feeling on the inside. I'm wearing it on the outside. But of course, we're like masking all of the time. And so like we can't depend purely on like what someone is displaying. Yeah. So recognition is is complicated. Exactly. Now, there are, of course, thought aspects to emotions. And it's easy to recognize your thoughts in yourself. Um, But it's tricky to recognize the thoughts in others, what another person is thinking. A pretty handy rule of thumb that I picked up from Dr. Brackett is that people tend to think mood congruently. So if someone's in a frustrated mood, for example, they might start expressing like how everything seems so inconvenient. Mm. Or if they're in a happy mood, they might be talking about how everything is just like going their way. Isn't it just great to be alive? Once you've assessed that yes, an emotion is happening and you've made your general impartial observations as an emotion scientist, you get to do my favorite part. What's that you ask, Brad? What is that, Lisa? You get to put it on a chart. A chart, you say? Yes. (laughs) Like, can you imagine just walking around with a clipboard with this on it? This Brad is the mood meter. Will you describe this mood meter for the people? Uh, It's a big box separated into four other boxes, and those boxes are separated into tiny boxes. The four boxes are red, blue, yellow, green, and within each one of those are a set of boxed words. Like in the red, enraged, panicked, stressed, jittery. In the yellow, surprised, upbeat, festive, exhilarated. In the green, at ease, easygoing, content, loving. In the blue, disgusted, glum, disappointed, down. But then there are lots of variations of that, I guess, that feeling, that emotion. Excellent. A-plus description. Stressful. Stressful. (laughs) It was developed by James Russell, a professor at Boston College, who pointed out that human emotions have two core properties, energy and pleasantness. He then created this four-quadrant grid using pleasantness as the x-axis and energy as the y-axis. 
He then plotted different emotions along these axes. Each quadrant is also assigned a color. Red is the most obvious. It's for emotions of high energy, low pleasantness from a range of enraged to peeved, I guess. Then yellow is high energy, high pleasantness. So from like ecstatic to just like pleasant. Um, blue is low energy, low pleasantness from despairing to apathetic. And green is low energy, high pleasantness from serene to at ease. The aim of our recognition is to not nail down exactly where on the mood meter an emotion falls, but rather just the general quadrant color. Yeah, what you're feeling, exactly. red, yellow, just, green, blue. Just generally. One key point of recognition is that it is the broadest brush of ruler and the least accurate. When you're recognizing an emotion in yourself or others, you are riddled with biases that you cannot weed out without doing the other steps of ruler. There are the biggies, culture, race, gender, but there are also personality differences, context, and of course, perspective. Another bias you may not have considered is attribution bias. So when we see neutral faces, the emotions that we're experiencing, we see on that neutral face. So depressed people, for example, are more likely to see a neutral face as sad. So let's move on to you, understanding. What Dr. B calls the core skill of understanding is finding the underlying theme or possible cause that fuels the emotion. Once you've recognized and established the quadrant, it's time to start getting specific. So you can ask questions like these. What might have happened to cause the feeling? What usually makes you feel this way? What's going on that you feel this way? What were you doing right before you felt this way? Who were you with? What do you need right now? What can be done for support? You can be asking these questions of someone else or yourself. When you're excavating someone else's emotions though, be wary of attribution bias, which is the presumption that a similar experience would cause the same emotion in another person. Let them tell you what they're feeling. You don't want to assume, because you know what happens when you assume, Brad. You make an ass out of you and me. Classic and true. Full understanding requires a myriad of other skills. Storytelling, perspective taking, pattern seeking, problem solving. But it starts with asking questions and really listening. Until we know what causes the emotion, there is nothing we can do to help. Let's say it again for the people in the back. Until we know the cause, we can't help. As much as we'd like to, we can't just skip to quieting, soothing, distracting, or extinguishing. That is just kicking that can right down the road. Trying to internalize this, I Lisa. know, it's so hard. It's just like, should I process my emotions or just watch another episode of MasterChef? <laughs> <laughs> MasterChef. L, labeling. Up until this point of ruler, we've been just information gathering, right? We haven't really done anything to address the emotion. According to Dr. Brackett, in the arc formed by the ruler process, L labeling is the pivot point. It is the hinge that takes us from observing the emotion to addressing the emotion. Another great quote from Dr. B, once we name them, we possess their power. The key to mastering the skill of labeling your emotions is granularity. Psychologist Lisa Feldman Barrett defined emotional granularity as the adaptive value of putting feelings into words with a high degree of complexity. In her research, Dr. Feldman Barrett 
categorized her participants as granular, better able to differentiate emotional experiences, and clumpers. Oh, no. Less able to differentiate emotions. I don't want to be a clumper. Granulars performed better than clumpers at emotion regulation and tended to be in better physical, mental, and emotional health than clumpers. Like, part of me, like, is a little bit, like, I would like to see how they weeded out. If you are depressed, are you going to have less access to, yeah. like, your vocabulary and things like that? Are you automatically a like clumper? I, yeah, I, I don't know. I would have to see more. I didn't read the actual study, so I, I don't know. But I think that that is a good test for your own mental health. If you're going, like, well, I'm having a, a big emotion. Can I approach it with granularity? Yeah, you know? no, I like the I like the concept of granularity. I just don't like the naming of clumper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes it reminds you of like kitty litter or something. Yeah, or something. The key to build your emotional vocabulary is labeling each emotion with care and specificity. And you can start by using the mood meter, figuring out your quadrant and trying on each emotion for size, and then but then you can expand. You can seek out your own emotion words. And place them within the mood meter yourself. As Dr. B puts it, when we don't have the words for our feelings, we're not just lacking descriptive flourish. We're lacking authorship of our own lives. Mm. So that's it for ruler for now. Okay. I, I think we should keep our mood meters handy because as emotions arise for a couple, we need to get them in the habit of practicing these first three skills of emotional intelligence so they can start breaking down emotional barriers as a family. Especially now that Tara is approaching the age of reason swiftly. I think it'll be very easy to drop these people into certain quadrants of the mood meter. I thought a fun Twitter thread would be to like take panels yeah. out of Invincible and just yeah. go like, okay, let's place this in a quadrant, people. And the great thing about Ryan Otley's art is he is so expressive. So, you know, it's it's easy to label the emotion, to recognize the emotion, because his characters really do wear it on their faces, mm -hmm. literally. Yeah. Uh, but before we can get into it, we got to do some words of affirmation. Na 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 affirmation. So that was a tiny one. Ooh yeah, affirmation. So for first-time listeners, <laughs> uh, words of affirmation, it's our way to give back to our new and upgrading Patreon subscribers. We curate and use these ourselves. This week's batch of affirmations come from Brene Brown's 2015 book, Rising Strong. Full title, Rising Strong, The Reckoning, The Rumble. The Revolution. There's actually a, on the Kindle cover of Permission to Feel, there is a Brene Brown endorsement front nice. and center, right where it belongs. But it sent me down another Brene Brown rabbit hole, and I have been buying all of her audiobooks, and this is the one I am listening to right now. She's going to have to come back around as a love expert. I, I'm, I'm feeling my own um, resurgence. I love it. I love it. So let's get into a receiving headspace, Lisa. Mm. Let's quiet the mind a little bit. I take a nice deep breath. <sighs> this uh, first affirmation is dedicated to Lance from Comic Book Keepers. You may remember him from last week's batch of affirmations, but he's already upped his tier from the dollar level to the $5 nice. level. He wanted to get in on that Slack channel. 
So here we go. Lance. When you wade into discomfort and vulnerability and tell the truth about your story, you are a real badass. Greg Lichtig. You don't have to do it all alone. You were never meant to. Aden Hamand. Owning your story and loving yourself through the process is the bravest thing you'll ever do. Yeah, there you go. That was really nice. Those are three excellent Brene Brown affirmations, Lisa. Good selections. They are definitely of a theme. They are. Um, Yeah, of course, we don't uh, demand that all our listeners join our Patreon feed. We are happy to have you here. and You can support us in many other ways by sharing this episode, by subscribing to the podcast like you hopefully already do, by giving us a nice Word or two on Apple Podcasts. With a five-star five rating, rating Five-star rating mm-hmm. only. That would be really swell. Uh, and we need to read a review. It's been a while since we've read a review on the podcast, so please head on over to Apple Podcasts, write a review, and we will read it. So, Invincible Reboot. Today's discussion will be covering Invincible Issues 121 through 126, published between July and December of 2015. They were written by Robert Kirkman, penciled by Ryan Otley, inked by Otley and Cliff Rathburn, colored by Jean-Francois Ballou, and lettered by Russ Wooten. Here is the plot synopsis taken right off the back of the trade paperback. While Mark, Eve, and Tara make the best of their new life on Telescria, Throg continues to elude capture. With war on the horizon, loose ends are tied up, conflicts are brought to a resolution, and a door is closed so that a new one can open? I added the question mark. Can it open? <laughs> it sounds appropriate. I, I wasn't reading along and you sold it to me. Yeah. Excellent read. Now let's go ahead and bring Mark and Eve out of the waiting room. Let's bring them into session. Let's put them on our couch. We are going to now break down their relationship as seen in Reboot. Let's get into it. Although this first issue in the Reboot arc actually doesn't have anything to do with Mark and Eve directly. Uh, We flash back to Earth and we see what's going on with the Guardians of the Globe, Rex, immortal all that awfulness uh so much slaughter amongst our heroes robots plan has fully gone into effect and as we saw in modern family things are going swimmingly for the unknown citizenry of the planet earth but the guardians of the globe know that it all got this way through through robot being a dictator. This the soil and green is people, right? <laughs> We're all thriving off of something that is inherently not good. What I like about this issue is how it kind of operates like battle beasts fight with Throg in the last storyline where we kept flashing back to that brawl and, you know, you know, while Mark and Eve were trying to settle down on this alien planet and just figure out the vibe of their new life 
outside of Earth are off-world, Battle Beast was being obliterated by Throg. And we talked about how that fight underscored that life just keeps going mm-hmm. whether you're aware of it or not. Like, Mark and Eve can run away and try to start a new life, but things beyond their sight are happening that are affecting their lives. And they can't see what's happening on Earth. They left Earth. They said, not our problem, but whoa! Mm-hmm. <laughs> Earth is going through it without them, and it's rough to see. We know that Mark and Eve were certainly in between a rock and a hard place. Like, they had these two principles that in an ideal situation they would want to uphold, but in this case were mutually exclusive. They wanted to join with Immortal and the other Guardians of the Globe going up against Rex, because even though Earth was in this place where they felt that they were thriving... It was because of this simmering dictatorship. And the apocalypse of their friends, right? Like Rex did preemptively strike against them and kill all their friends. So they have this vengeance lust in them too. You're saying that's what happened in this first issue? No, 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 no. That's what happened before. Like how Rex took control is he took care of a lot of the problems. Right, right, right. This very shallow contentment the earth is feeling is built upon this profound injustice. Mark and Eve do want to join Immortal to go up against him, but at the same time, they're trying to start a family. They wanna create a safe environment for their child. They want to make sure that their child can continue to have two present parents so that Tara can have the stable upbringing. And so they decided to choose to move to Telescria and parent Terra as opposed to joining Immortal. And now what Immortal said was going to happen is exactly what happened. Immortal said, we need you to go up against Rex and his army of robots and undead soldiers and like the whole thing. And Immortal was right. They couldn't do it without Mark and Eve. I mean... To be fair, though, they might not have been able to do it with Mark and Eve. Right. You know, so Mark and Eve chose selfishly to raise Terra off world and they abandoned Earth. And that's awful, but also kind of understandable. And yet what's great about this issue is it just shows the consequences of that decision. We're left to stew in this really violent misery, and it's hard to observe. The most intense decisions that we have to make in our lives often come, like, there's so few decisions, big decisions that we make where it's like, oh man, and everybody involved was fine, and everybody involved felt supported and loved, and everybody had the best possible outcome. And what I think we see over the course of Reboot is all of Mark and Eve's fears are more or less coming true. They were afraid when they left Earth, things would break bad for the Guardians of the Globe, and that has definitely happened. They were also afraid that when they moved to a new planet, they wouldn't adjust to their new lives and they're they're not adjusting all that well. And also that Mark would end up 
just putting himself in danger anyway, just in a different context, completely removed from his support system of his mother and his father, also to a lesser degree, Eve's parents, like everything that they know, they are removed from, and now they're still in that same situation. They pulled themselves out of a fight and they found themselves in a new fight. Alan the alien in the next issue is like, look, this Throg situation is bad. Battle Beast is dead. What are we gonna do? Mark, we really need you. I know I said I would find you a job that wouldn't be that violent, but uh, maybe you need to duke up. So like, it goes back to what Dr. Brackett says, where like, if you don't actually sit down and process the emotion of the crisis, you can't actually solve the problem. There's no escape. So what Mark and Eve were doing was essentially just running away, going like, Mark is not going to be able to resist saving his planet and saving the innocent. So let's take him off of Earth. And that's just not who Mark is. It's not who Eve is. They're people who care and they care a lot about everyone. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. And that all starts to really come to a head in the next issue. I feel like with chapter two, we can really practice our first three skills of emotional intelligence, our R, U, and L. Recognize, understand, and lure. And label. And label. And lure. Lure. Lure them into. Lure the person in so that you can really get a good close look at those emotions. (laughs) Recognize, understand, label. Okay, got it. Got it, got it, got it, got it. In this issue, Alan invites Mark and Eve on a triple date to go see this Sonic play. and Because Alan has been really preoccupied with this Thrag situation, he's feeling a lot of pressure from the coalition, but at the same time, he really wants to support his friends, Mark and Eve, so that they can adjust to living on his planet. He's really feeling that host pressure, and he's made some mistakes, right? So he's sent them to a- Really devastating picnic with these mating lizard plant beasts and, and it act- turns into a big old nasty Ryan Otley gore fest brawl. Yeah, yeah, and it hasn't been working out well. So he feels like a night at the theater, a night at the Sonic play might be exactly what everyone needs to have a nice evening out. And so we get to have some good Oliver and Huluma time. Yes. This adorable couple. Huluma has written Mark off after last issue. You know, Huluma made a delicious dinner for Mark, Eve, and Tara, and Tara got deathly ill. And so Mark and Eve have kind of... They've, they, like they've transferred a lot of anger onto Haluma because of that situation. And in transferring that anger, Haluma has picked up on like these earthlings are jerks. I really feel like Mark and Eve's relationship with Haluma was really set up to fail right from the beginning because it goes back to that thing with mood congruent thinking. When Mark and Eve first landed on Telescria, they were actually really shocked by the cultural differences and just like the flora and the fauna and everything was so strange. And Eve had never even been to an alien planet. So when they met Haluma, they were already in this super defensive, hyper apprehensive place. So when they met Haluma, 
They were automatically skeptical of her, right? Haluma comes to their place, makes this meal that is super weird to them. They eat the meal while feeling like, oh, I don't know how it's going to work out. Then it turns out that the meal does end up making Mark feel a little bit rumbly in the tumbly. And when Tara has this really shocking, but ultimately totally safe allergic reaction to the food, that retroactively confirms Mark and Eve's initial negative reaction to Haluma, even though that initial reaction was actually unfounded and unfair. Imagine if Oliver had waited to introduce Haluma when Mark and Eve were a little bit more settled, were perhaps feeling a little bit more at ease and a little bit more open. They could have met Haluma and gone, oh, what a great match for Oliver. Not necessarily someone I would choose for myself, but they seem really happy together. And then Haluma makes this meal. And then Tara has this reaction and Mark has this reaction because Haluma made a mistake making the food. And then the conclusion is, oh, Haluma, what a great person, but perhaps not a great cook, or perhaps, you know, is a little overconfident, or perhaps just made a one-time error that anyone could make. Like, we have to remember that we tend to think mood congruently. So if we're already primed to see danger everywhere we look, we're more likely to assign danger to a person that we're meeting for the first time. When we enter into relationships for the first time, like those early meetings, often we are imprinting those relationships with those initial emotions, mm -hmm. which might actually be apart from or away from the meeting, right? right? So if you're having a terrible day at work and you're really down in the dumps about it, and then you go out on a blind date, mm -hmm. that blind date might not go well because you are bringing in those work feelings into the date set setting. That's right. And then when you meet that date and you, you go like, ugh, this date is not the person that I'm looking for, then instead of being open-hearted on your date, you are building a case for why that initial reaction was correct. Yeah, and so what you're seeing in... This arc, or at least the first part of Reboot, is them making the conclusions based on emotions that were established in the Modern Family arc. So now let's do the RUL for Mark and Eve before the date and then after the date. So you're going to start, I see you looking at the page where they're going over the bridge before the date. And there's like this alien homeless man who reaches out for, you know, some assistance but because they've had their assumptions so brutally subverted previously, for example, when that little girl was looking for her cat in the tree mm -hmm. and Mark goes and he rescues that cat in the tree and actually that cat was just a dessert that she wanted to nosh into and she bit the head off of that cat thing. Uh, you know, that was shocking to them and like, we don't want any more of those surprises. So let's just not help <laughs> this individual who's asking for it because we really don't know what's going on here let's just keep on moving so looking at eve on this page where would you say that she is on the mood meter so immediately if you look at that one panel uh let's see that's it's the third panel on page 35 of the trade paperback uh she looks shocked 
concerned, maybe disgusted. We might be in the blue zone of low pleasantries. We might actually be in the high energy side of that as well. So it could be tipping into the red with nervous or jittery. It's yeah, somewhere that, there. I agree with that. I think that she's in the red, right? But not so far down the pleasantness scale. She's so, probably in that little box called shocked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would even say, because shocked would be like super high energy. I would say she's more like kind of like towards the center, kind of maybe like negative one or two on the pleasantness scale. But then I think that she's more like mid-range, like mid-high energy around nervous, intense, yeah. may maybe jittery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, let's go. Let's go with that. Mark, on the other hand, he's not quite there. I don't know if he's necessarily in the red. I think that he's in the blue. Yeah. That's what I think. I think that he is Maybe a of, little pessimistic, maybe a little disgusted. I think he is... Edging on apathetic and maybe discouraged. You know, he's acquiescing. Like, she's the one who says, like, let's not help this person. I just can't handle it tonight. And he just kind of defers to you saying, okay, you're the the boss, whatever. Yeah, so they walk away. Of course, the last two panels of that page, we do see an individual who does help that person. And then... They get a thanks, but with that thanks, that 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 person who looked like they needed help suddenly copies their face. Yeah, we're getting a little scroll action yeah, happening. And that doesn't get paid off in the reboot arc. We just need to remember <laughs> this moment for future Shapeshifters are in the mix. Yes. So they finally get to the Sonic play. They're in the little lobby. They meet up with Haluma and Oliver. Uh, and uh, Haluma, it's hard to say what Haluma is thinking because her expression as this insectoid individual doesn't um, read the way that Mark's very human expression does. But let's keep in mind, when you see a neutral face, you are more likely okay. to attribute the emotion that you're feeling to that face. Right. So they're, they have, have just been accosted. <laughs> yes. And now they're entering into this sonic theater where they don't know how Tara is going to react. So they're already apprehensive. And Mark's expression when he responds to Haluma's hi with a hello, that is reading a little, I, I mean, it's, it's definitely in the red. I'm mm -hmm. going to go with annoyed peeved. Right, right. Okay. So now they're getting ready to go into the play. Now look at, Eve's face right before they're about to walk into the theater. I, Unsure, extremely concerned. I would say, yeah, we've dipped into the blue now. I think she looks exhausted and kind of, uh, I would say she's all the way on low pleasantness, two ticks down on energy. I think that she's pessimistic. But Mark is trying to go like, you know what? I, you know, this is going to be okay. I'm going to assure you, you know, Tara is definitely going to love it. Mark looks down at Tara. Tara, baby expression, pure joy. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but Eve looking at Tara's joy, extremely skeptical. Right, right. Okay, so now they've gone to the play. <laughs> They're, they have had to left, leave early because Tara is hysterical. Yeah, she has a reaction to what she has just experienced. 
And um, I would say that Alan is looking, like he's looking really concerned. He feels bad that he has sent Mark and Eve on yet another unsuccessful outing. Oliver is disappointed because Mark and Eve don't feel like going to a second location and maybe going out and getting some dinner. Um, What Mark says is, we can't go out to dinner. And if I'm honest, I'm not feeling great after that either. So I think he looks exhausted. Eve looks exhausted. They're both in the blue. The Earthlings biology, not ready for sonic plays just yet, especially a biology that is bringing in so much baggage of skepticism into the sonic play. Yeah, I would say if we were to label their emotion on that last panel on the page following the play, I would say that they are extremely low energy, mid-low pleasantness. Mm, I would say not that far on low pleasantness. I would say that they're probably just drained. Yeah, they're disheartened. I'm going with the word disheartened, that category right there. Uh, Now let's compare all those facial expressions, all those emotions from the Sonic play to what Mark and Oliver go through when they fight the Ryaks in the next scene. Yes, so already when you turn the page, they're just patrolling. They're not anticipating any danger, but they both look, well, they are kind of processing their emotions from the previous night, but I would say they are definitely way higher on the the energy scale than where we saw Mark the previous evening. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they're trying to meet each other in the middle and, you know, they're doing the good family thing. We don't quite understand each other, but we're going to figure it out. And then it's interrupted by the two of them spotting this illegal canslock farm. And they're immediately in the yellow. Yeah, yeah. They're immediately super high energy, super high pleasantness. I would say that they are way over in the ecstatic, exhilarated, elated corner. Yeah, and we see like this is Mark... In his element. He's in his happy place. This is his happy place. This is what it was like to be invincible on Earth, stopping bank robberies and whatnot. And, and, And Mark needs to find the happy medium of just being like a do gooder mm-hmm. without falling into the realm of like, I'm going to die and, and leave my family alone, or I'm going to bring all this evilness onto my family's doorstep. So like if, if Mark could just have days like this fighting Ryaks after Ryaks after Ryaks, that would be the best thing for him. Mm-hmm. Of course, life just doesn't give you, you know, uh, easy softballs right over the plate every single time. I use the sports metaphor. It felt I love it. Okay. I love okay. it. Okay. Okay. I-, I say, let's just go for it. Just do it with the sports metaphors. Thanks, Nike. Um, Now, meanwhile, back at the apartment, Eve is trying her darndest to enjoy the fauna of her new planet. And then this huge, like, moth beast, like, pukes this, like, putrid green... Yes. Like a slugginess onto her. It's not puke. It's not. It's poop. Yeah. (laughs) It's this crazy bird pterodactyl lizard thing that has a mouth for an asshole that has splattered her balcony. Yeah, and then we see in that bottom right-hand corner, I hate this stupid planet. Yeah, she's at a real low point. I would say, yeah, she is all the way low energy, low pleasantness, 
in the despondent, depressed, despairing corner. And I think that if we were to practice a little bit of the you, the understanding portion, and get to the bottom of why exactly do you hate this planet, I think that we would start to get to the bottom of what had her moving to Telescreen in the first place and what was her expectation when she moved. But we also have to remember that as she's experiencing all this unease, she is a new mom. Mm -hmm. So being the mother of Tara kind of cranks everything to 11. Right, right. right. So all not, that unease is now cranked to 11 unease. Because it's not just the expectations for her own life, but the expectations for the life of her child. And so what she needs is maybe a little escape from her motherhood. Mm. And when we go into the next issue, we're going to see what it might be like if Eve has some time to really consider and think about this new environment apart from being a mom. Yeah, she needs to be supported and feel like she truly is co-parenting. Chapter three opens with a scene that might show Mark and Eve at their most high functioning. Mm, They're yes. actually talking to each other and addressing all their anxieties. I think they're really doing the R-U-L. They are recognizing the emotions in each other. They're trying to reach an understanding to why those, and, those emotions are happening. And lure each other out. And, and labeling what those emotions are. <laughs> And through doing that, they're able to say, oh, I think this, like Eve is able to say, this is actually what I think I need to feel better. And it works out great. Yeah, I need some alone time. And Mark, he says, you know, yeah, okay. Let me take care of Tara. I'll have a daughter daddy day and you go have some you time. And then Eve is out. <laughs> like, yeah. She just jets right into the sky. And I love that panel where Mark is like, oh, I guess, I guess mom's gone now. <laughs> I love that panel because, like, I would say if you looked at her from the waist down, uh -huh. you would say, yeah, she's really jetting out of there. Yep. But if you look from the waist up. Serene. She is, I would say, um, I would well, say okay. exhausted. I think she is still drained. Her, like, her yeah, left no, tank right. is still you're, empty. You're right. Uh, I said serene maybe a little too, a little too early. That expression that Eve has as she's flying off. I, I think you hit it with exhausted. She's still like fully in the blue. Yeah, but then we get these two beautiful pages. And apart from the reboot moment, these might be my favorite two pages from the arc where you get, what is that? Uh, eight, 16 panels of Eve exploring this new world. And we see her, you know, Again, watching one of those kids eat the head off of those kitty creatures. What are they called? Like the Kothas? Kothas? I have no I idea. Already. I don't remember. She's, you know, sitting in a park looking at the wildlife. She's watching some kid uh, hoverboard away from a police officer. She's looking at the jewelry of the planet. In maybe the most disturbing panel, this is panel six on that page. Uh, she's at a concert watching this drummer really go to town. And the first time I read this comic, I didn't notice this, but that drummer seems to be smashing his sticks, <laughs> his drumsticks, 
upon his drums, which are sentient. You know what? It's not It's not your culture. We, we don't you know, know, you don't understand the music of that culture. They've got that can-slock expression. They look like they are suffering in some pure horror as they're being beaten upon. But Eve doesn't seem to notice. No. And she seems to be enjoying the local scene. Yeah, she's at the market. She's playing some kind of chess game with a stranger. She's going to the aquarium. She's going to museums. She's trying dresses on. She's shopping. She's eating at like some sushi place. And by the end of that page when she finally reunites with mark like that exhaustion expression from the past page that you pointed out mm -hmm. is gone and is that is that a smile lisa it is a smile i would say she is now squarely in the green high pleasantness low energy i would say that she might be kind of mid pleasantness like at this was the content. serene expression that I sh like this is this when I said the word serene, this is the moment I was really thinking mm, of. Yeah. Uh, th so she says, like, you know, how was your day? And then the next page, we get another 16 panels of Mark and Tara together. And it's a lot of diaper changing, uh, but they had a blast together. I think that he really enjoys being a dad. Yeah. And I think that being a dad does satisfy to a certain degree that like hero complex yeah he's a daughter daddy he yeah. loves being a daughter daddy yeah he really really does and then when she gets home they both explain that they are low energy that they are tired but not but, too tired but happy and i would say eve is a little horny yeah in like a good way i would say where's horny on that scale lisa yeah but horny can sometimes be like low pleasantness like, there's, like, times when you're, like, sexually frustrated. I would say that that's low pleasantness. Oh, oh I see. Okay. But, like, so I would say horny in and of itself. Like blue balls? A, yeah, yeah. Oh, like Blue so, balls is low pleasantness. I would say uh, incel levels. Of, that would be in the red somewhere. Okay. But, but I would say that. What um, kind of horny is Eve? I, I would say that she's kind of like a, I would say in the green kind of. Kind of sleepy, horny, happy, sleepy, <laughs> horny, which is a great place to In be. The green and then horny. I would say, Brad, if there is a serene panel, it is this final panel after they've made sweet, sweet love and they're just holding each other. I would say that is low energy, high, pleasant, it's blue nice. goodness. And the panel is even blue. <laughs> <laughs> Some of that blue goodness. Yeah. Oh, gosh. But then, of oh, course. We skipped over something that is huge. What? What? And that. What? The last issue ended with Alan telling Mark, "Hey, I told I I promised you I wasn't going to do this, but we have located Throg, yeah. and I would really 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 appreciate it if you and Oliver went and got him." And And Mark agreed. And Mark agreed yeah. to do it. And And so after this sex scene, we crashed to Mark going into battle, bringing an armada with him, and Eve Let's him do it. Yeah, so that was part of that beginning conversation where Eve was saying, yeah, I'm feeling kind of trapped in this home, but also Mark does feel compelled to go fight Throck and is kind of asking permission to go and do that. So on that Serene page is also Eve saying, I understand that you have to go and get Throg. Just make sure that you come can come back because... I'm going to feel, one, terrible if you die, and also, two, I'm going to feel unsupportive, unsupported if you're not here to help parent this child we made together. Yeah, you've abandoned me on an alien planet. You cannot 
abandon me any further. Right? right. Yeah. So he has to come back from the Throg battle. Ooh. ooh, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Kirkman, don't play nice. Uh-uh. So, yes, uh, they are following Space Racer's lead, one of my favorite invincible heroes. Space Racer has tracked Throg to a certain planet, and Oliver and Mark are leading the Armada against him. Right. And so... um Throg, by the time they get there, Throg has already left and they're just kind of like scoping around for clues. And remember, we learned at the end of Modern Family, Throg has bred his own army out of the uh, bug people. What are they called? The Thraxons? Yeah. So Mark is exploring and he comes across a cave and before they can warn him not to go in the cave, uh, he falls down a hole and he meets this glowing ponytail. <laughs> I mean, it's the ultimate Star Trek The Next Generation alien. It reminds me of Encounter at Farpoint a lot. It, it, it's it's this beautiful, bright, <sighs> tendrilled thing. And he is compelled to reach out and touch it. And when he does, boom, he's back on the toilet at the very beginning of Invincible, but this time not illustrated by Corey Walker, but by Ryan Otley. I love seeing these panels illustrated by Ryan Otley. I love comparing them to the original Corey Walker panels. It's so exciting because it is an iconic scene. When you think about those first issues of Invincible, you do think about this moment where Mark is just trying to read Science Dog on the toilet and his mom's banging on the door and she thinks he's masturbating, but he's not. He's just enjoying a comic book. <laughs> and, and so when you see this panel, the it like instantly you're like, what, what? <laughs> Oh, yeah. I was in the red, but very, like, barely down the pleasantness scale. I was shocked. So I would say that this this panel and the expression on Mark's face would be the quintessential... Um, what's that guy's name again? Ernest? Ernest, uh, oh, or Jim Varney. Jim Varney. This is the Jim Varney <laughs> level of shock. Yes, it So is. if you're looking, if you are following along at home on your own mood meter, <laughs> you can find shocked all the way at the top of high energy, but just one away from, so it's like negative one on the pleasantness scale. Yeah. What a hell of a good cliffhanger to end chapter three. Yes. Initially, when I read this, I wasn't exactly sure how Mark was going to handle things, you know, how he was going to use this knowledge. Was he going to do it secretly, manipulate things on the down low, or is he just going to blurt it all out? And for the most part, he just goes ahead and blurts it all out. He goes and he finds Eve at high school. He says, I know who you are. I know that you're Adam Eve. I know that I know everything about the teen team. And she, it, I mean, she, of course, is like, you're some kind of supervillain. What, what, right. what is, what's going on here? How do you know all this information? I think that Mark has grown so much as an individual in terms of knowing that he can't solve his problems on his own. Especially right now when he doesn't actually have superpowers yet at this point in the timeline. So he needs to establish himself with the teen team, with yeah. these superpowered folks. He needs his support system. Yeah. And so he needs to hotwire a way to establish their relationship, which he does by going like, hey guys, I'm from the future. I know who you are. But what's so painful about that scene when he does get in front of the teen team is that Eve doesn't love him. No. And Eve doesn't know him. Eve loves Rexplode. And mm -hmm. Rexplode, still alive, hanging out there. Robot, still 
still just robot. No one knows anything about robot. And one of the ways that he tries to establish himself as being from the future is that he has all these details about robot. Yeah. And then robot in two panels establishes clearly his own emotional intelligence and how he ultimately anticipates knowing that if he is put on the defensive, he he's going to make really poor and uh, non-compassionate decisions. I, I, I would just like to read directly from the yes, comic. Yes, please, please, so please, So I want to read something that Mark says to the group first, which is, you know, I wish there was something you guys could say that wouldn't be something I knew, that maybe I could use my knowledge of the future events to confirm without me having already known it. But that seems impossible, though. So this is happening on page uh, 76 of the trade paperback. And Robot says, you know what? I might have something. And then on page uh, 77, he says this. I never wanted you to find out about what I really was. Some of that was because I was worried you'd treat me differently. The truth is I don't relate to people on a normal level. This is something I am acutely aware of. That scares me because I worry I'm going to make a decision, do something that I feel is the right thing to do, but my lack of humanity is going to cloud my judgment, allowing me to do something very bad. And that like blows Mark's mind because we know, yeah, he's going to do something really, really bad. And it's because he's a sociopath. He is his name. He is a robot emotionally. But after that initial repulsion washes over him, Mark goes like, like, well, first, Robot is like, what? What did I do in the future? <laughs> and Mark goes like, actually, what you said put a lot in perspective for me. So, like, I feel like by Robot expressing his concerns, saying, I have an emotion, I have fear about this thing, Mark was able to reach a better understanding of robot. Yeah, he gets some empathy for this horrendous being. Does it solve anything? No. No, it does no. not. But it does give him a connection. And I think there is comfort in that connection, comfort in that understanding, but maybe not forgiveness, you know. One interesting thing that Dr. Brackett says in Permission to Feel is that people with less compassion tend to be in higher power positions. CEOs are have lower compassion. Yeah, you hear that all the time that, you know, uh, the most sociopaths in this country survive and thrive as CEOs. And you, you can't really tell, okay, is correlation causation? <laughs> yeah. Like if you are a person with zero compassion, are you necessarily going to become this powerful person? Or by becoming a powerful person, do you have less compassion? But people who feel compassion see a greater commonality with strangers. So they tend to punish people less, tend to be more generous and cooperative, are more willing to make sacrifices for others, while people in high-powered positions tend to be less responsive to the emotions of the people around them. So you think about Robot, who goes, well, I am the most valid person to be in charge because I'm not swayed by emotions. I can make the most logical decision. And we've seen that lead to complete, cold injustice. Now, 
while all this is going on, Mark's powers kick in and he's able to fly away. And the reason he flies away, rather than ad addressing the robot problem, because robot's going to be a problem, but robot becoming a problem is way down the timeline. What's going to be a problem real darn quick is his dad, Omni-Man, Nolan. He is about to reveal himself because when Nolan finds out that his son has powers, that's when he went on his Guardians of the Globe kill crazy rampage way back in like issue 12 or 13 or whatever. I think what Mark is doing by prioritizing Nolan over Robot is I think that he understands that he doesn't have the level of trust of his peers to really do anything about Robot right now. Like, even though Robot now sees, okay, clearly there's something up something Special. up with Mark, I don't think that he has established with the rest of his little teen team that he has some really powerful intelligence that they can ultimately use. Well, what's interesting is that Mark kind of starts to reflect the actions of what Robot will eventually do. Using the cold, hard logic of future knowledge, he's able to prevent certain events from happening. He right? is circumventing some of his previous pitfalls, one of which is the first time that Nolan found out that he had powers. Mark did not know that his father loved him. And he knows that his father does not know that he actually loves his wife and actually loves his planet. Yeah. It's like in every action movie where you're just sweating over like, do I cut the red wire or do I cut the <laughs> blue wire? Mark is thinking through, how do I roll out the facts to my dad? How do I speed it up so that my dad understands that he actually does love me? Yeah, exactly. How does, how does he take everything that they've learned over the decades worth of relationship that they've had since the first time Mark got his powers and condense it to, okay, now we actually have a really powerful ally to ultimately stop the future as I know it from happening. Yeah, and we see him succeed that way in the small crimes, in the small battles that he had in the early days of Invincible. But we don't necessarily, well, we do ultimately see him succeed with his dad too. Right. But again, anything with his dad is going to be hard and brutal and violent. Yeah, I think one thing that he didn't actually avoid actually coming out to Omni-Man and not having Omni-Man discover him. Yeah. So Mark has been using his knowledge of the future, right, to, to solve these previous crimes, which you've mentioned. But Omni-Man still finds him out on the job. Yeah. So that's kind of like a redo. Yeah, yeah, interesting. He still can't bring himself... Uh, up to coming out to his dad, right? We he, did. He, yeah, it's we still did, an accident. We did skip a scene that I want to talk about. Can we go back yeah, to the to, dinner table? To the first dinner table scene. Yes, please. Mark has just gotten his powers back and he's kind of formulating in his head what his next move is going to be. And he is kind of uh, displaying some social cues that his parents should be picking up on. He's being really quiet. He's being very apprehensive and they're just carrying on like a regular conversation. And then Deb turns to Mark and goes like, well, how was your day, Mark? And Mark replies, um, fine, nothing exciting. 
the usual. And then they just keep eating like Mark isn't being weird. Dr. Brackett has some pretty strong opinions about the word fine. So it's pretty standard in English, particularly in the United States, because that's where I live, so that's all I can speak to, is that the common response to when someone is asking about your day, how are you feeling? The answer is fine, which has become a meaningless word, right? And so I'm gonna read a direct quote. If you ask me how I feel and I say fine, it spares me having to tell the tale of my weakness and woe. Fine becomes our polite way of saying, please don't ask me how I feel. If I say fine often enough and you say it often enough, anything more descriptive will seem unnatural, even alarming. But our feelings shouldn't alarm us. So like by having this standard thing where it's like, oh, it's actually kind of rude to say anything other than fine, we have created created this really volatile environment for feelings. So since I've been reading this book, I've been trying to not say fine. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of like the word fine. And I like it for those reasons. Because I think... I think today I used the word fine on you earlier mm -hmm. uh, because I was a little frustrated about something else that we won't get into. We don't have the time for it. And you said, is everything okay? And I'm like, fine, it's fine. And really what I'm saying is like, I don't want to talk about it. Right. Like the book is saying, like Bracket is saying. And and maybe it would be better or healthier for me to say like, oh, I'm, I'm having an emotion. I don't really want to talk about it right now. Oh, we can talk about it later. So, like, but you know how I react to fine. <laughs> you hate it. So when I hear fine, I You know hear, I'm not fine. <laughs> I can't tell you what my emotion is because my emotion is at you because I believe I'm the center of the universe. Right. My emotion involves you and your failings. And if I tell you what my feelings are, it will upset you. So, like, <laughs> you're just sitting here going, do you know what I really love, though? is to be passive aggressive, <laughs> right? So I'm actually, you're saying, I you were actually frustrated about something unrelated to me, I correct? Think I, okay, well, I, well yeah, yes, that was unrelated so to you. So like now I'm really curious, like when you say fine and you're being like cryptic, <laughs> do you, you want me to be curious, but you do not want me to not ask- Not necessarily, because you've asked me and what I'm saying is I don't want to talk about it, I'm fine. Right. What I'm saying is, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, so... Which maybe I, I should actually say is like, eh, I don't want to talk about it this, this second. Yeah, I, I mean, I would prefer that to yeah, fine. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you need a moment. Is, well, because fine is not true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fine is a lie. Fine is a lie. Fine is a lie. Yeah, and that then, little dog in the fire. And and fine isn't just a lie, but fi fine is now a riddle. Yeah. Right? It is an invitation to, to pester. Yeah, it's just like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going like, okay, um, I'm fine... You work on that over there. You work on the emotion that I'm having yeah, yeah. separate from me. Okay. Like, it's All not right. fair. Yeah, I'm gonna have to work on what's a good way of saying fine without saying I fine. think like, I, I think saying I, I'm not open to talking, like I'm I'm Just working on a problem Yeah. and I don't feel like talking about it right now. Yeah, yeah. Is everything okay, Brad? <sighs> not really, Let, give me a moment. Right, right. Okay, that's what like, I'll, I'll you try to Like, you find a lot of comfort in saying things that are not true. Like, you know, you do, like, when you're upset with me, 
You like to tell me. <laughs> I'm not. A, I'm not mad. I'm not mad. You like to tell me that it's not about me, <laughs> and it's not true. And I can tell when it's not true. But of course, Sometimes let's go like confirmation bias. <laughs> I always think it's me. So. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. All right. So anyway, that's the power of labeling, my friends. Uh, back to Invincible Mark and Eve's problems, not Brad and Lisa's problems, although. This podcast is all about Brad and Lisa's problems. Thinly veiled. Thinly veiled. Um, now, when Omni-Man confronts Mark, and, he, and, and it's now time to have a conversation. So, like, first off, Omni-Man catches Mark doing his thing in the job. And Omni-Man says, like, we'll talk about this at home. Cut to another dinner sequence. This time they're washing dishes. And they can't really have an open conversation with mom around. So they go to have their private conversation up in the sky. I think Mark is like, can we take this outside? Because he knows that there's going to be the breaking of stuff and he'd rather it not be the house. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he, he doesn't want his mom to get actually hurt. Because th that is a possibility when he has this a conversation with his dad that, mm. you know, mom could catch some collateral the way that she did the first time around. Um, so he asks dad, you know, do you love me? And dad has, is like taken aback by it. Yeah, right? You know, shocked. why are you asking me that question? And, you know, <laughs> Omni-Man does say, I truly love your mother and you deeply. You're both very important to me. And then Mark says, then listen to me, okay? Please, Dad, please don't try to conquer the planet. And then the panel of Omni-Man's expression matched with the panel of his clenched fist, another epic cliffhanger. Straight to the red. Straight to the red. <laughs> Just that upper left-hand corner red. of rage. Yeah. So then we get to chapter five. So chapter five, I think this conflict between Mark and Nolan is a great example between a person who, who is being granular with his emotions and a person who is being a clumper with their emotions. Oh, man. Nolan is a clumper. Nolan <laughs> is a big-time clumper. And what Dr. Brackett says is one of the dangers with being a clumper is if you have all of these different micro emotions that all in your brain all lead to one thing, anger, you're going to have the same anger reaction every single time. So um, your partner says something offensive to you, anger. You stub your toe on the couch really, really hard and it hurts, anger. You forgot to pay a bill and you just received a late fee that you feel is unjust, anger. And so you end up having in your brain this really well-worn path to one Emotion. destination, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Anger. Where if you go like, okay, my partner says something humiliate like says something offensive to me, I'm feeling humiliated. I stub my toe really hard on the couch. I'm feeling shocked and surprised. Right. And so then, in analyzing it and being an emotional scientist you're and really yourself, labeling the emotions properly, not just one broad thing, you're giving yourself a lot of options. Yes, you are now creating I love it. several courses of action. Love this, yes. So I think that what Mark is doing is granulating 
his father's emotions and going like, what you're feeling now is ashamed that you've been loving this planet that the Viltrumites specifically told you you needed to conquer. You're also feeling anger that you um, ultimately have to betray your planet. What you're feeling is love for your family. What you're feeling, and he's kind of doing this laundry list of all of, and ultimately you're feeling this meta emotion of feeling ashamed of being angry, of being humiliated, of being a disappointment, right? And I think that though though there is some fisticuffs. Oh, it's extremely it's extremely brutal fight between the two of them. And Mark knows that he doesn't have the strength to really go up against Omni-Man. And the other smart thing that Mark does in this fight, which didn't occur the first time around, is that Mark leads Omni-Man to the Guardians of the Globe before Omni-Man got the jump on them so that they can actually have a proper battle and Mark can get the support of the Guardians right, of the Globe. Right, right. Right, having that safety net there. Yeah, and, and like as a longtime Invincible fan, getting to this moment and getting to see the Guardians of the Globe have their fight with Nolan in a way that they were denied way back when, it's so satisfying. This is such a great sequence. And ultimately what ends up happening is that Nolan is subdued so that he has an opportunity to really think and process his emotions on his own, thinking about what his son said to him, because the Guardians of the Globe are able to get him to the Pentagon under the watchful eye of Cecil. And Nolan's last words to Mark as he is chained up in this crazy concoction under the Pentagon is thank you. And the final panel of this issue is a Mark trying to process this version of his dad saying thank you. It is a little bit of a mirror of Mark's interaction with Robot. Yeah. Because um, here, I'm just going to go ahead and read Nolan's little speech. If it weren't for you, I would have done horrible things. I know I would have killed the Guardians of the Globe. Some of them were my friends, and I'd even thought that I'd have to do it, or how I would do it fast, before I realized what I was doing because I know I'd want to stop myself. I would have killed so many, and I would have lived with that guilt for the rest of my life. This planet has changed me. I think that we know ourselves better than we give ourselves credit for. Robot knew if I suffered the humiliation of my peers finding out who I really was, I would do terrible things. Here Nolan is saying, if I was left to process my love for this planet on my own, I would have done terrible things. And they were all just, they both Robot and Nolan were alienating themselves Emotionally, they were alienating themselves even though they knew they were capable of doing things that they did not want to do and would ultimately be ashamed of. But here is the great thing about Kirkman and Otley on Invincible is that in the next issue, the final issue of the reboot arc, Mark is killing it with this knowledge. Mm -hmm. He is making the planet a better place. He is succeeding in ways that his past self never possibly could have. But in doing that, he is also extending the relationship of Eve and Rexplode. You know, he has now done such a good job protecting the planet, he has obliterated his relationship with Eve. And... 
It's killing him. It's right. killing him. We see Mark and Eve having like a little moment after that battle, a successful battle against the Flaxons. And Rex comes in and goes like, careful there, Invincible. That's my girl. And then Mark just goes home to his childhood bedroom and just starts crying. And to me, like I see him all the way down on the energy scale, all the way to the left on the pleasantness scale. He's down in that bottom left-hand corner all the way in despairing. What that brought to mind to me is, as I mentioned in our words of affirmation portion, I'm listening to Brene Brown's book, Rising Strong. And in that book, she quotes Rob Bell and his definition of despair. And he says that despair is believing tomorrow will be just like today. Mark knows that no matter how long he stays in this timeline, he will not have Eve and therefore he will not have Tara. And Tara is his world as well, a father. So when he hits that moment of despair and he's crying in his bedroom, that's when the blue tendril creature comes back and says, hey, how's it going? And the tendril puts it out, you know, pretty plainly, like you can have this world and you have made this world better. You have saved millions of lives. And there is a balance to the universe, right? Like there's a possibility that you will get with Eve again, but Tara probably won't be, or whatever you guys end up having won't necessarily be Tara. So you might lose Tara, but is it losing Tara worth all the good that you're putting out into the world. And what's interesting about this issue is that Mark tells the alien, no, uh, I don't care how much better I've made it. That's not worth the loss of Tara. And I refuse. Yeah. I refuse to continue down this path. Take me home. Put me back where I was. And the alien beings... <laughs> confused like, right that, that like it's like wait why a good person wouldn't do this right yeah the alien says like well you were our last hope and mark is like well that's not fair your last hope for what you yeah. haven't told me who you yeah. are yeah where you're from and i would like to know a lot more about this blue tendril creature but reboot doesn't really want to explore that uh at all but the alien does return mark to the Thraxen, Flax, no, the thra Flaxens, Thraxens, the Thraxen planet. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> <laughs> Returns Mark back to that planet and he escapes the cave and he immediately goes looking for Eve back on his home, well, not his home planet. What, what's the planet his called? His new home planet. Therascara? Themascara? No, that's no, somewhere no. else. But, but, but to their, their, their old apartment and it really is their old apartment he finds Eve, and Eve's shocked to see him because it's been years when Tara walks out onto the patio. Tara is no longer a baby. Tara's like a young kid. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Mark presumed that the alien would put him back right where he had been left off. Yeah, so years have gone by. Mark has been absent for years, and Tara's words to him are, Are you my daddy? And that's how Reboot ends, with ramifications 
this is not a reboot reboot. Yeah. It has long-lasting effects that we won't even get to until our next episode when we discuss Full House. Yes, we have to leave it there. That is the end of this session with Mark and Eve. Oh, my God. Like, this, this arc, just every issue is just like banger cliffhanger after banger cliffhanger after banger cliffhanger. And then we get to this, and you are just... I mean, I'm I am Mark in my bedroom. You yeah, know, I am in a state of despair for this kid. I feel like that last page with a five-ish, six-ish. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, your old Tara is a prime example of sub- subversion of expectation. Because, of course, I presumed when he was back on that planet, oh, it was going to be the same day. Because yeah. that's what it is in every other this comic book and story. This would just be one of those bottle episodes of next generation or like episode of the week, you know, you have this adventure, you learn some life lessons and then you move on. But no, (laughs) we're going to have to deal with the trauma of reboot in the next arc. And I think another important thing to point out is he missed out on a huge chunk of Tara's life because of what he would have considered a low stakes decision, right? When he went into that cave, yeah, he had, he did not know he, he would be having to choose between living in the present and living. Well, he didn't even get the choice. When he went into that cave, he had no idea what the ram, yeah, ramifications mean, could be. And it's like, and it's not fair. You know, I think about the one time we nearly died on the road right. driving to Winchester, Virginia. Our tire blew out and I slammed on the brakes and I spun the car and we went into uh, an off ramp and we nearly smashed right into that concrete header. And if we had, we would have died or one of us would have died or one of us would have been severely injured. It's the closest that Lisa and I have ever come to death. And it was a stupid split second decision to slam those brakes and spin that car. Right. And you don't know, you don't know these things are going to happen. Right. We, we spend a lot of our lives worrying about what we consider high-stakes decisions. Yeah. Should I stay in this apartment or should I leave the planet? You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a high-stakes decision. Should I walk into the mouth of this cave or look somewhere else? That is a low-stakes decision that had huge consequences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you should all be at home terrified to do anything. <laughs> no, that's not That's not the point. That's, you know, why, that's why this isn't our last you, session you, with Mark You don't have a choice sometimes, you know? That's what happened to Mark when he went into a cave. That's the story of Reboot. Uh, yeah, and I think we're just at that stage where we need to, like, reflect mm. on Mark and Eve as well as ourselves what are we taking away from this episode and applying to our own relationship and daily lives? I am loving the mood meter. Yeah. Don't you think it's so fun? Yes. You know, my big takeaway on the last Invincible episode was the concept of meta emotions. Mm -hmm. And as I've said, I've been thinking a lot about meta emotions. And I, I do like having a chart, having a mood meter to pull up and really analyze what am I feeling? Where am I on this scale? You know, when you see red, well, what, what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. And so like, I'm, you know, I've got a flare up. We've talked about like expressing and naming our flare ups to each other. Like Lisa, I've got a little bit of a flare up, but now maybe we have this added tool to go like, Lisa, I'm having a flare up. One second, let me pull up my mood meter. <laughs> and I'm definitely in the red, Lisa. And I am feeling, ooh, well, 
I've, I've got a lot of low pleasantry feelings, but I'm not necessarily high energy, so I'm not enraged. I'm not quite livid. Maybe I'm just fuming at mm, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, obviously, it's not practical to always have the mood meter like in your pocket, but I think when we're working specifically on this particular task of going like, okay, let's get granular about it. Let's get to the bottom of it. You know, having something to rely on and to just give a visual to that process that we're doing. So I think, you know, being serious now um, and not just jokey Brad, Brad uh, person, um, I was thinking about how I could actually apply the mood meter mm -hmm. and it probably wouldn't be in the middle of the flare up. It would be after that flare up subsided a little bit yeah. and I have some actual time to reflect on what that hot feeling was. Yeah, I think sometimes like when you're in the midst of an emotion, it's flustering. I, I think we our impulse is still to like, okay, I gotta nip this in the bud. What exactly is this emotion? And I, I think that we just have to accept that it's going to take a little bit of time. And to resolve our emotions and our address our emotions is actually worth the time. And I think also just from a straight, like podcasting is fun kind of perspective, yeah. the mood meter will be useful going into future sessions, obviously with Mark and Eve, but I could see us bringing the mood meter into other conversations with other couples. Yeah, it's a, another really convenient shorthand. We need to make the mood meter available for the people, how can we do that? Well, there's a link in the show notes for the mood meter, but also you can go to our socials at CBCC Podcast on Twitter, uh, Instagram, and Facebook, and I'll have a post there with the mood meter so you can look at it specifically. Okay, great, how fun. Yeah. Another thing that is kind of a carryover from last session that I feel like I can still continue to work on is trying to parse out what is an emotion and what is a feeling. Mm -hmm. So thinking back to the last session, uh, a feeling is something that is relational. So for example, disappointed is an emotion, but unsupported is a feeling. I'm disappointed because I had this expectation that I would be, you know, that uh, like I'm going to come up with a random example that is, True. Oh, <laughs> I don't hey. know. True. When my parents forgot to pick me up after the choir trip in high school, <laughs> I was I was uh, disappointed. But then also it made me feel not supported or not not thought of. Actually, I to tell you the truth, I really didn't care. And then my <sighs> choir teacher drove me home and I got Bonus. some extra time with Mrs. Stanford, which is something that would never happen today for a public school teacher. It's like, get in my car then. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, like all these things, it's just really helpful to have the vocabulary and the tools to truly inspect and investigate. And, you know, I like the term to be an emotional scientist. I also think that's something that we'll be pulling out of the permission to feel conversations and applying to future episodes and future conversations. I am really excited for the ER potion potion portion magically we have resolved our emotions <laughs> by drinking I, this potion what if it was a potion i also find the idea of the next portion being the er potion portion oh, you have, <laughs> you have say potion the idea of like it's an emergency room it's the er <laughs> we need to put them in emotional traction yeah but the er of the ruler yeah, term yeah the expressing 
And the, ooh, what? what relating. What, no, not relating. Rebelling. Not rebelling. Ooh, you're not helping. <laughs> not resolving. Regulating. I got there. And I didn't use any of my notes. That was off the dome. Very good. And then Brad edited out the pauses of the thinking. <laughs> Hopefully. Because it's like now we've got the label and we know that the label helps right. a little bit. That granularity helps. To me, I feel like I'm a person with like too much emotion sometimes. And I feel like I'm expressing my emotions all of the time, times in ways that is like not particularly uh, helpful or constructive. Sure. And I know that comes from a negative impulse of like, I got to control myself. I've got to control my emotions. I'm showing too much. Like I want... I want to work on my expressing of emotions in a way that still like fosters the having of emotions, but also is considerate to the people around me and doesn't cause a scene and all of that stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to continuing with Dr. Brackett and permission to feel like, I just think that this is really great. Yeah. It feels like he's really giving us some tools to function in this world and function as a society. I can see why he does this in large groups because really the only way that ruler works, like workity works works, is if everybody is on board. You can see why it works so well in classrooms, right? In yeah. classrooms and he does it at companies and things like that. If you guys have been at all interested, I really recommend getting this book. I, I, I found, I haven't finished it, so <laughs> he can crash and burn at the end, you know, who knows? But as it stands right now, I'm finding permission to feel to be really, really uh, revelatory. Yeah, it's revelatory yeah which is me. not always the case with some of the books that we select on this podcast Yeah, to help sometimes us. we pick some real trash, and for that we apologize. <laughs> oh, man. I'm also really excited to get to the next Invincible volume. We have been left on such a cliffhanger mm -hmm. with Reboot, and I think Full House is going to be a heck of a good conversation. And, you know, Corey Walker is coming back to do the art, uh, giving Ryan Otley a little time Time, a little leadway into the final two trade paperbacks. Although Corey Walker does some work on that uh, storyline as well. So it'll be nice to return to the original Invincible artist and see the story through their lens. And yeah, I like, you know, it's, it's only going to get more rough for Mark and Eve and uh, for Brad and Lisa trying to work through their emotions. Uh, that will not be our next episode. You're going to have to wait two weeks for us to get to full house because our next episode will be another conversation with creators Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. They are coming back to the podcast. Uh, they were here not too long ago to talk about their Clayface One Bad Day story, which was great, but it was a pretty brief conversation. And they had such a good time that they actually reached out to us and said, hey, we'd like to have a more in-depth chat and we're launching Guardians of the Galaxy with a new number one. Let's talk that. And Ooh. we said, yes, that sounds wonderful. But also, we'd rather just talk to you about <laughs> Star Trek. Yeah, I, lo uh, I love me some DS9. Yeah. So that is my Trek. Their new Star Trek story uh, that is being published over at IDW incorporates a lot of Benjamin Sisko. Sisko is our favorite Star Trek captain. We are going to talk 
a lot about Deep Space Nine and Star Trek with Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. And yes, I'm sure we'll bring up Batman Beyond and we're going to talk Guardians of the Galaxy and all the other incredible things that they're doing. Their Captain America run. Oh, my goodness. But this is going to be a Star Trek show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Star Trek's the next episode with Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. Then we'll get back to Invincible with Full House and then we'll wrap up our Invincible conversation with the death of all things parts one and two. We're halfway through Invisible, Lisa. Feels I can't great. believe it. I can't believe it. I miss it already. I got to enjoy my burrito. So, Brad, like right after we finish our outro, I'm just going to explore this cave. Oh, no. So if I'm not back in four to five years, um, take care of Snakey for me. Okay. Little Peaches. <laughs> Imagine me coming back and Peaches is like 10 feet long. <laughs> and my talking. snake. And talking. Yep. And talking. Mom, is that you? No, don't go in the cave, Lisa. Okay. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? That's how these outros go. <laughs> uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show posters, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I'm always accepting words of affirmation on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, mm. you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. Yes, we just did a Dungeons & Dragons car, uh, what are we calling it? Comically Real Ride Along Review from the car on the way back from the theater. I love doing those things. And I love a long title. That was a very silly conversation. <laughs> very loosey-goosey. We have our Sandman issue by issue, episode by episode. We're on Sandman issue 63. Uh, we're hopefully somewhere towards the end of the Kindly Ones. We're not sure because it's our first time read-through. And we're enjoying the heck out of that. And uh, yeah, lo lots of good stuff coming down the Patreon pike. Oh, it's my turn. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that, and then I continue. I continue talking. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars in Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy. Let me microwave.